This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, so uh, as soon as the elections were over in 2020, uh, conservative Democrats attacked progressives saying that uh, progressives cost them their own election. I believe there's a thing called personal responsibility, but I haven't seen it yet in DC. Um, and uh, and they said, well, you know, it was defund the police, uh, it was socialism, and it was Medicare for all. Hmm, well, that's curious. Um, so uh, we do journalism here at TYT, and uh, and they do journalism over at the Intercept. So what they did was, they looked into the races where uh, it was tough districts, not easy districts, uh, where folks uh, campaign on Medicare for all. I wonder what they came up with. Well, luckily for us, Akela Lacey, who wrote that story. Is with us now. How are you doing, Akela? I'm well, Jenk. Thanks. How are you? Uh, good, good. So, uh, so the progressives that actively campaigned on Medicare for all in purple to red districts, they all lost, right? No, they actually defended their seats, and you know, a number of these people were were Democrats who flipped red seats in 2018 and are, are strong advocates for Medicare for all. Um, we saw a, the the Democrats who ended up losing their seats did not run on Medicare for all, which is a, a small detail that has not really come through in in a lot of the re- reporting on what centrist Dems are are saying in in light of the the results from last week. Um, so it's yeah. Katie Porter, Mike Levin, Tom Malinowski, these are these are seats that these are stalwart Medicare for all advocates, people who have been, you know, vocal on this issue throughout the cycle, um, who are not getting credit for running on policies that are broadly, again, supported in a, by wide margins um, that, that Democrats don't have any sort of interest in picking up um, and or learning from the reasons that they, you know, they ended up losing losing support in these races as we saw last week. But Akela, Katie Porter is in a Republican plus three district. So that's as tough as it gets. And she was very progressive, vocally progressive in Congress in a way that's super excited progressives. And as a co-sponsor for Medicare for all. So I mean, if you're telling me she won and people can look these things up, they are in fact facts. She must have won by a hair, right? What she win by one point, half a point? Um, I was not that close. I, I needed I would need to double check the numbers, but no, it was it was not it was not by a hair. She she defended her seat again. She you know she's been a popular member of the party. She's been one of the most um, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but most um, you know the, the people who have been questioning uh, questioning people during hearings in the most um, tactile and and smart way that we've seen since she came into office. Um, this is not somebody who is kind of like a nobody in Congress, and so it's just interesting that. Nobody is is really talking about the fact that again, there you know, while there are all these examples of people losing their seats in in other districts where Medicare for all or defunding the police, you know, while people weren't even running on those things a lot of the times, they, those aren't the areas where you know they're expecting them to necessarily pass. And so, looking at people like Katie Porter and Malinowski and Levin is is important when you're talking about 
whether Democrats want to want to learn anything from what happened. Uh, I have your article in front of me, so I know uh, Katie Porter won by eight points. Um, so thank you. <laughs> plus three, uh, Republican district should have lost by three, won by eight. Huh. And you know, you hesitate in using the word aggressive. I wouldn't. She's wonderfully aggressive. Uh, and uh, and hey, it turns out aggressive wins. Huh. It turns out if you make your case, they might actually vote for you than the other guy. I know that's actually a foreign concept to Democrats, and I'm not joking. I've been sarcastic the whole time, now I'm not joking. Uh, Mike Levin is in our plus one district. He won by 12 points. So uh, yet, uh, corporate media. All I see on cable news is yelling at progressives. It's almost as if they believe in alternative facts. Hmm, interesting. So now let's go to the cities. Because again, it's a gut corporate Democrat reaction. We lost, so we don't want any personal responsibility. And we can't stand progressives, so we're gonna blame them. And then the Jake Tappers of the world are like, yes, I was waiting for this opportunity to lie to my audience. That's me talking, not you, Kayla. Okay, but <laughs> okay. So they they all agree upon this fiction. But wait a minute, didn't Joe Biden win Michigan because of Detroit? Didn't he win Pennsylvania because of Philadelphia? Didn't he win Georgia because of Atlanta? So what what happened in those cities? So it's interesting. So Biden Biden won, you know, in those cities with boosts from those cities that ended up being the last states cities in the last states to count the ballots last week. His margins, you know, in Philadelphia and I believe in Detroit and Minneapolis were smaller than Clinton's margins in 2016, but turnout in those cities hit record highs. And while Trump got, you know, more votes in those cities, they propelled Biden over the top how he needed to win Pennsylvania, Michigan and Minneapolis. And on top of that, organizers in those cities connected with campaigns for Rashida Tlaib and Mahan Omar and, you know, in Philadelphia connected with unions like Unite Here and SEIU, um, you know, groups like <laughs> Make the Road Pennsylvania, Working Families Party, these are groups that were, you know, doing the legwork, doing the calls and text messages and, you know, virtual canvassing to engage people down the ballot that Joe Biden, frankly, you know, in my analysis, I believe they helped stop him from bleeding more in these cities than he would have when the campaign, you know, had stopped canvassing. They didn't resume canvassing until October 1st. They weren't campaigning for down ballot candidates and they expected that you know, down ballot, they expected that Biden would, you know, do well enough on his own without support from those people. We saw kind of the opposite happen with Republicans where Trump's Trump helping down ballot candidates actually did boost them over the top in some places. And so, you know, we're left with the questions, at least from progressives that I've been talking to as to, you know, why did Biden not help these groups? And now why is he blaming, why are Democrats blaming them and their constituencies and their the people who they represent on, on losses that we saw last week when in reality, House Democrats and and Senate Democrats haven't been able to provide anything, you know, materially improving people's lives throughout the last, you know, months of the pandemic. That's something that people have not forgotten. Uh, Ilhan Omar had uh, one of the greatest lines in political history. I said it on the spot as soon as I heard it on a, a podcast on the Intercept. Uh, you guys asked her. Uh, I think it was Ryan Grimm. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump uh, attacked you in Minnesota and said that uh, you know that probably should come out to vote against you. What happened? And she said, "Well, he effed around and found out." And I've never loved anything more in my life. 
Uh, so <laughs> that was really the mood we saw in Philadelphia too. Like Trump purposely put a target on the city. Organizers were ready, you know, to they were in the streets basically forming a counter protest to counter what you know didn't really turn into a Trump protest until much later in the day. But they were there basically to say, you know, if you're going to put our name in your in your mouth and and come at us like this, we're going to show you that you know we're turning out in droves basically to unseat you. And while you might come out here and you know try to intimidate people outside of the convention center and and you know make baseless claims about fraud. Um, the city was ready, basically, with uh, you know their response was basically dancing in the streets, which is like we don't we whatever you're saying like isn't isn't phasing us here, which was very much the mood um, until things get, got a little hairy with the Lewandowski Pam Bondi uh, press conference that later yeah. that earlier that day. But yeah, yeah. Uh, well uh, <laughs> the. Infamous press conference at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping uh, actually dodged a bullet because uh, Fantasy Island let out a little later in the day. Uh, otherwise, they would have walked right across the screen on that. Anyways, uh, so, Akeli, do you have a sense of the mood of uh, progressive legislators in DC? Because um, I'm super tired of uh, helping and then uh, getting slapped across the face the minute the elections are over. And I hope to God they're super tired of it, but I don't know. So do you have a sense of like, is there a situation where they're going to imminently fight back? Or are they still holding their fire for mama bear? So I mean, it, there's varying moods, but Ryan has been doing some reporting on the Progressive Caucus is changing, you know, their structure in in advance of trying to kind of leverage their power more this cycle. You know, other people are talking about what's going to happen. You know, hoping that progressives get put into a Biden cabinet or a Biden administration, you know, with decreasing optimism. But then wondering, you know, what will that what will that mean for if people leave seats in the House where they already have a Democrats have a slimming margin and progressives are expanding their caucus, but you know, again, have a slim margin. I mean, some of the leverage that they hope they hope they're having is that now that Dems have lost so many seats in the House, they really do need the the you know quote unquote squad and expanded members to be able to do anything, and so hopefully that gives them a broader mandate. But people are you know. See, hearing comments from people like Connor Lamb, Abigail Spanberger, James Clyburn this morning, um, people are wondering kind of like, what is the next shoe to drop? Who, which policy will the Biden administration walk back first? All of this is like very speculative because, you know, again, like we're just seeing kind of the transition um, teams put out, you know, just earlier this evening. But um, yeah, a lot of a lot of question marks. Kayla Lacey from the Intercept, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jen. Absolutely. All right, back on a conversation. And now we've got a really interesting guest for you guys. Jeroen Zilberman is the director of Valley of Tears. It's a 10 part series on HBO Max about the Yom Kippur War in 1973. So, Jeroen, welcome to TYT. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So, what I want to do, Jeroen, first is show a quick part of the series, and then I want to come back and talk about it. So, let's watch together. 
gut-wrenching already. Um, okay, um, so let's start at the beginning though. Uh, so for folks who don't know, how did the uh, Yom Kippur War start? Yom Kippur starts uh, in October 6, 1973, uh, about uh, 2 p.m., actually five minutes to 2 p.m. Uh, they both a combination of the Egyptian army in the south and the Syrian army in the north attacked simultaneously. Israel was taken, totally taken by surprise. And because of that surprise, it meant that the, I would call them low ranking soldiers who were guarding the, uh, the borders were uh, under extreme attack from artillery, hundreds and hundreds of, or actually thousands of tanks uh, and, and planes a very devastating uh, first few days of war until the reserves being uh, organized and come to the help. And that's when things starts to, uh, you know, more or less balance in terms of uh, power of war power. Yeah. Uh, by, by then there's so many casualties, it's, it's horrible and devastating. We're telling the story of the first three days in the North. Okay, got you. Uh, so uh, that was back when Israel uh, used to take significant casualties. That doesn't happen anymore. But there was 10,000 killed, wounded, or captured uh, during that war in 1973 on the Israeli side. Um, and so uh, it, it says in the summary that uh, that the soldiers didn't know that that this could have been avoided by leaders that they trusted. Um, so tell us what, what what that means uh, from the Israeli point of view? What that means is Israel, uh, as a background, Israel was in a euphoric state of mind. In 1967, just six years before the Yom Kippur War, Israel uh, won a war, what's called the Six Day War. Uh, and in six days, Israel managed to really crush the Egyptian and Syrian army, especially with its uh, significant and talented air force, um, you know, devastating these armies in six days. So the uh, result of that was the Israelis felt that nobody will ever dare to attack Israel because they know what Israel for the IDF is capable of. And with that euphoria, you know, the, uh, the both the Syrian and the Egyptian build an army major big armies with the help of the Soviet Union. 
the reason being that they wanted to take back land that were occupied in 1967 war. Right, and um, well, that didn't happen. Of course, uh, it got worse uh, for the Arab no. armies and, and countries. Uh, and so, um, what do you think that uh, did to the psyche of Israel back then? And it might be a different story now, but I'm curious about back then. Back then, I would say it started a major protest against the government. It changed Israel forever. So there was Israel before Yom Kippur War and after Yom Kippur War. And mainly in terms of before that, there was the, the government was made of what's called Mapai in, in, in Israel, uh, which are more uh, socialist parties. Uh, mainly of Ashkenazi descent, which means Jews that came from Eastern Europe and in, in, in Euro, European countries uh, that were leading. And there was a trust that they know what they're doing. They know they take care of society. We let them run the show and they know how to run the show. And what Yogi Kippur did was to show Israelis that that was farthest from the truth. That actually uh, these these leaders were not doing their job right in terms of uh, you know getting the information right. Once you get the information, how to execute upon them, how to uh, prepare the army in the right way for a moment of attack, and simultaneously as politicians to uh, be able to do to make peace. Uh, rather than war, because eventually, you know, the Egyptians started the war to get the Sinai Peninsula back, that was occupied in '67, and now they got it after the war. So that came to Israel, and we had this peace. So the question is, did we need that war? Was that war actually a, a real necessity, or were we able to do the peace process not after the casualties, but before the casualties? It's a major question. There are major arguments about it. Historians, very smart historians on both sides of this argument argue, and they're all valid um, arguments. I believe that the peace uh, could have been achieved without casualties. It just called for people to be really, really uh, brave, and I mean, courageous, but also, you know, to, to have a, a, a grand vision. Yeah. Which rarely happens, but it happens yeah, once in and, a while. And, and it, as you point out, it did happen after the war. And, it, it, and it's a thing that yeah. Jimmy Carter does not get enough credit for. Uh, he brought Begin and. And, and so right, you're so right. Thank you. Uh, so he brought Begin and Sadat together, and it was not easy. Uh, it was a very, very difficult piece to strike. But uh, he he literally would not let him leave uh, until uh, they had a peace deal. He kept canceling the helicopters back to their yes. airport. Uh, and sure. so now, but Euro, sure. now I'm gonna get a little bit beyond Valley of Tears and and ask you for your personal opinion. Are we perhaps in the same boat now, uh, where the West Bank uh, is still occupied and Gaza Strip obviously does not control its own borders, etc. Have we learned any lessons from that? Uh, could we strike a deal now before there are more hostilities and dead on all sides? Or, or as Israel's psyche changed so much, um, as evidenced by constantly reelecting Netanyahu, that perhaps it's just not possible anymore. 
Well, I think it's always possible. I think that one has to change the whole, um, you know, conception of the Israeli society towards the Palestinian people and vice versa, the Palestinian to change their perception of, of the Israelis. Uh, it's, it's very challenging because for so many decades, and especially in the last decade, when Bibi Netanyahu rules the country, that we are bombarded with, you know, statements like there's nobody to talk to, uh, these people are all terrorists, uh, there's no way we can come up with any understanding with them, and therefore, uh, there's no need to do any sacrifices for that because we're only going to end up, you know, paying a bigger price. That kind of approach, uh, which I think the end game of this is to say, well, one day they're going to be so weak, they're going to be in such a terrible situation that they're going to beg for any kind of peace. That's the kind of approach saying, you know, uh, I think it calls for, um, if there's huge danger as you just mentioned, just like it was better to do make peace with the Egyptian. And by the way, that peace saves the Middle East, I can tell you that. That peace saved the Middle East until today. Without that peace, it would be a catastrophe in this region, catastrophe. So it's, instead, but, but that's, that's, that's the weakness, that's our weakness as human beings. You know, when we're strong, we don't want to give anything because now we're strong. So why should we share? Why should we do it? When we are, in, you know, then we get hit by something. Suddenly we become wise. I think uh, it's hard for us to control it. Again, for that, you need a visionary leader, a visionary leader that is willing to, to take major risks career-wise, in case of Yitzhak Rabin, you can see that he paid with his life uh, major risk, and all, only with me. And look at Sadat. Sadat was also assassinated in Egypt. Uh, it, it takes a visionary. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And right now, the, the, the regime right now is anything but wanting to make any peace with our neighbors. Yeah, so I got to ask you about one last fun thing before we end, but I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin was probably the most successful terrorist attack maybe in world history. Um, but, and thereby completely eliminating the possibility of peace in the Middle East. But real quick, yeah. before we let you go, uh, the Israeli Black Panthers are in the movie. Uh, or in the series, uh, and I don't think a lot of people know about that. So, what are the Israeli yeah. Black Panthers? Well, the Israeli Black Panthers is um, a group of people uh, that organized in order to protest in a more organized manner. Both initially, it was more, uh, you know, like protest against government, and then became more political uh, of of Jews who came to Israel from Arab countries, from Morocco, from Libya, uh, from Yemen, uh, from Iraq. They got together because they were mistreated, uh, you know, for various reasons. But I can say just the, the simplest one, it's because, you know, Israel was established in 1948. Uh, some of the pioneers or many or most of the pioneers came from Eastern European countries. And the, uh, the, 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 the sort of uh, Israelis who came from Arab countries came later, you know, during the uh, 50s, etc. And as always, you have that hierarchy, you know, those who are in power who gets all the main position in, in, in government and main position in, uh, in the economy, etc., etc., had, you know, that advantage. 
Um, and that that's why a major sort of injustice, social injustice uh, was happening during the 50s and the 60s. And during the 70s, the second generation, meaning those who were born either here or were born in, in, in Morocco when they were very young, they, they got together to protest. That's the Black Panthers. They called themselves Black Panthers after the American uh, black movement of the Black Panthers. Uh, they fought hard. And I can tell you, and, and, you know, that's a part of the, uh, of the Yom Kippur War or the Yom Kippur War that we're telling, basically, is that also social tension. Uh, I can tell you that this protest um, was successful, which means that it eventually led to the fact that today we don't see, you know, differences in terms of um, in government and in any industry. Uh, we're completely blended in a great way. Of course, there's always more to go. Um, and more, more to fight towards social justice and against oppression. All right, Yaron Zilberman, he's the director of Valley of Tears, already incredibly successful series in Israel, and now coming to HBO Max on November 12th. Yaron, uh, great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely.